Psalm 97. We continue with this section, really, of, as we said last time, Psalm 95 through 100, or what are often referred to as coronation psalms. And these five psalms in particular, we see a lot of emphasis upon the reality of God as king, the fact that God is ruling, that he is a judge upon his throne, and that he's even coming back, as we saw at the end of Psalm 96 last time, as it reminded us that he is coming to judge the earth and shall judge the world in righteousness. And so uh, these psalms really have that focus of elevating and reminding us uh, that our focus should be on the fact that God's rulership is always still taking place no matter what we see. In fact, you'll notice Psalm 97 picks up with that theme once again. It begins by opening, telling us the Lord reigns. Therefore, let the earth rejoice and let the multitude of the isles be glad. So we're reminded as the psalm opens of this very important thing that no matter who is reigning on any earthly throne, and there have been times throughout history when different people, kings and monarchs have ruled over entire empires. There are different people that are in political places who are seeming to be in control, calling the shots, ruling over populations of people. But it's so important ultimately that we realize that looking beyond earthly thrones and earthly rulers, that ultimately Yahweh God, our God, Jehovah God, is the one ultimately who is reigning and who is superintending. And he is never going to be voted out of office. Uh, He's never going to run to the end of his term, and we're going to get somebody new and have to wonder what kind of job they're going to do, taking care of creation and staying in control of everything and even subduing and causing things that are happening by evil rulership of man and treatment of humanity that somehow God always still superintends and takes those things and works them all for the good. We don't have to worry about that. God is secure. He's always been on his throne. He's always going to remain on his throne. And really, that is the something that should give to us tremendous comfort because mankind has never been able to govern himself. That's been evident from the Garden of Eden, uh, even in the area of self-governance. Adam had an opportunity, and he bombed out and failed pretty quickly. And whether it is self-governance or governing one another, because we are broken and corrupt people, we've never been able to do a very good job with that. But thankfully, God always remains upon his throne. And that should be our confidence. That's the thing that gives us a degree of peace to always be able to step back from whatever's happening, whatever's going on, whatever we're seeing, and to have the confidence as the people of God to know, okay, nevertheless... The Lord's still on his throne, right? And that's not just trite uh, Christianity statements that we make. This is a biblical reality. The Lord is reigning. And no matter what's happening, the Lord's still on his throne. And that should give us a degree of peace and really something, as he says here, therefore, in light of that, the the whole earth, he said, should, should rejoice. We can't always rejoice in regards to some of the things that people who are reigning on human thrones are doing But we can always rejoice, the entire earth can rejoice, knowing that despite what is happening on the earth, that the Lord is reigning. And even to the farthest place, the multitude of the isles, that is the the furthest parts where you have to travel over great bodies of water, all creation, he says, 
can rejoice in that very fact. Now, verse 2 down through verse 6 seems to speak of the the coming of the Lord, the idea of his coming and power and presence being very strong. He says, verse 2, clouds and darkness surround him. Now, the idea there of darkness metaphorically isn't speaking of darkness in the sense of evil, and certainly sometimes light and darkness is used in contrast in the Bible to speak of what's good and holy and righteous and pure versus what's evil and corrupt and defiled. The Bible says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Uh, So that would contradict other places of Scripture. The idea here of clouds and darkness just speak of the idea of kind of like a storm cloud, that as God moves in his power, sometimes because he is so awesome in his doings that he is so powerful in the things that he's accomplishing, as Isaiah says, that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, his ways are higher than our ways, and almost like a, a storm cloud that kind of hides the sun and you can't see. It doesn't mean the sun's gone away, but you can't see. Well, this is the idea, that the presence and the power of God in some ways is at work. And though we don't fully understand it, maybe we kind of feel like we're in the dark a little bit or something's blocking our view from being able to understand how God is working or what God is doing, If you remember, even when God's presence was manifested in the Old Testament, it was that pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. And so these are some of the same pictures here, just kind of metaphorically reminding us of the awesome presence of God, maybe reflecting back to the tabernacle as the psalmist writes this, as he says, clouds and darkness surround him and righteousness and justice, he says, are the foundation of his throne. Now, That's a very encouraging thing to see. Verse 1 tells us the Lord is reigning. And we don't ever have to worry that somehow God's rulership or reign is going to produce anything corrupt. There's never going to be a bad decision. There's never going to be an unfair judgment that's rendered from God in his place of rulership. Because the Bible says of the very throne of God that righteousness and justice are the very foundation to his throne. So the very throne of God and all of his rulership, all the decisions that he makes, the Bible says the very foundation of all that upon his throne is everything that is righteous. The idea is God will always do what is right. We don't ever have to question that. Now, I know sometimes as we watch what unfolds and situations transpire, there are times when we all see certain things happen, maybe a you know, some unexpected event or some hardship or tragedy. And we struggle with, Lord, I just, this doesn't seem right. This just doesn't seem right. It it doesn't seem fair. But look, these are the times when in faith, we have to realize that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And that the Bible assures us that righteousness and justice, the idea is fairness. God never does anything unjust, unfair, He always operates in a way that is righteous and just because that is the very foundation of his throne in all of his decisions. And as I've said before, and I'll say it again, when you get to the book of Revelation and there you get pictures and images of the throne of God, one of the things that is being said continuously around the throne of God in heaven are righteous and true or righteous and just are all of your ways. See, with our natural eyes now and our finite minds, we watch what's happening and we say, okay, we believe the Lord is reigning. 
And then we see things happen that we can't explain or we don't understand or maybe we don't even agree with sometimes. Lord, this is, this is hard. Why would you allow this or why would you let this? Or Lord, why don't you change this or fix this or do this? And, and we're trying to put those pieces together and sometimes it makes us in our humanity want to question God or, or maybe even think somehow something's going wrong. But the wonderful thing is the Bible tells us by faith we have to believe righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne and that one day when we shed these bodies of earthly weakness with finite little minds of comprehension and we're in a different realm, we're in this temporal realm, God's in the eternal dimension, and that when we enter into glory and then finally we get this new glorified body and we are literally in his presence, that in that moment somehow, and I don't know how it's going to work, but somehow, in a moment, we're going to say, it all makes sense. Lord, everything that you, it was, everything that you did, that actually was right. What you allowed or, or what you brought to pass, Lord, somehow that ultimately was the right thing to happen. It was actually the best thing to transpire. And somehow when we see life from an eternal perspective, because see, that's the problem, right? Right now, we many times, we're always trying to put things together from a temporal perspective. And what we always have to remember is God is way more interested in my eternal benefit than my temporal comfort. And that's hard for us to want to swallow or believe now because we're temporal creatures and we want temporal comfort and we want things to be good, quote unquote, to a degree. But understand, God is always looking to increase my faith. God is always looking to deepen my attachment to him, to broaden my perspective that life is more than just existence on this earth. So at times, God will make an exchange for my comfort for better eternal preparation or what I would prefer to deepen my spiritual walk in relationship with him. And God is doing everything in our lives because we're citizens of heaven. And really this isn't our home. This is just where we're journeying as pilgrims. And part of this earthly existence is preparation for eternity. And so sometimes it's important for us to remember these things by faith when we can't process everything maybe logically and to know these are truths. The Lord, you're reigning. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. And then he says, verse three, and a fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about him. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The idea is the terror of the presence, the awesomeness of God's coming as he works in this way. Verse five, he says, the mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth, the heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. So again, there seems to be this picturesque description here, verses three four, five, and six of, of the coming of the Lord. Now, whether the psalmist here is describing the coming of the Lord at times when he came in his presence and power to help the nation of Israel, maybe to conquer in a battle or sometime when God moved in a mighty way the many times he has through human history, or whether this ultimately describes to some degree the ultimate coming of the Lord when our Lord himself in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ comes back the picture here is how when the Lord comes, his presence is so strong and so powerful that everything is subdued before him. He describes there in verse three, 
that a fire goes before him and burns up his enemies around about him. Again, reminding us, as the Bible says in the New Testament, that our God is a consuming fire. Again, fire is not something to be trembled with, right? You're not going to overcome fire. Fire is going to overcome you. And this is the idea here. Our God, the Bible says, is a consuming fire. And here, as the Lord is coming, it says the fire is going before him, the fire of God's awesome presence and it burns up his enemies round about him. That like a blazing fire just going quickly, ravaging you know, uh, just acres and acres of land. This is the idea. God is so awesome in his presence and his power. Literally, it says his enemies are just consumed and taken away. Verse 4 describes how his lightnings light up the world and the earth sees and trembles. It's interesting, Matthew 24, when Jesus talked about his coming, he said, you know, as you see the lightning flash from the east to the west, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. And how when Jesus comes, there's going to be no question what's going on. You see, people never have to, you know, sell to any of us this nonsense. Oh, well, the Lord came. or When the Lord comes, everybody will know. There'll be no question. (laughs) It will be so extremely obvious that when the Lord comes, there will be no question because he says, when the Lord comes, mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. I mean, think of the, the, you know, the, the mountain ranges that maybe we've seen or that we know or we've seen pictures of and these big, massive, immovable objects and no human power is going to do something to eliminate that mountain or to move a mountain it is this powerful stable immovable object but in in comparison to the presence of the lord this is when the presence of the lord comes that literal mountains will just melt like wax before the lord and when we read revelation chapter 6 through 18 and it describes some of the cataclysmic events that are going to take place Prior to and before the coming of the Lord, uh, the things that are going to transpire are going to completely humble humanity. Creation is going to be devastated as the Lord deals with these things and ultimately is bringing judgment upon the earth as he comes back. And that's why he says, verse 6, the heavens will declare his righteousness. It will be evident who he is as the heavens manifest the presence of the righteousness of our Lord and all people shall see his glory. Doesn't mean all people will glorify him. But the one question that will be evident to everyone is the glory of our Lord. And for those of us who've glorified him now, we'll enter into his glory and be able to enjoy the presence of eternal glory forever. Others will see his glory and have great regret as they realize we were fools and we forsook And in our stubbornness, we rebelled against this very glorious God, and they will see his glory and will face him in fear and trepidation as he becomes their judge and says, depart from me to the lake of fire. Verse 7 says, let all be put to shame. Notice who served carved images. The idea here is idols, any form of other God, any other thing that's worshipped, who boast of idols. The idea is in their arrogance, they boast and they brag about their their idol, their thing that's so important to them. And then he says, worship him, all you gods. That is all you other things. So here, the idea is that when the Lord comes, there are going to be those who literally are ashamed, ashamed and embarrassed that they gave their worship and their devotion to other things. And as we've said before, idolatry is something that's not just about little tiny carved images, wooden statues, things we think about when we think about idolatry. 
in the book of First John, John writing as a older saint, seems the, the oldest of the apostles to live out his life the longest. And John's message was little children, as he concluded, keep yourself from idols. Again, because we can all be prone to establishing idols and having idolatry as a part of our struggle as human beings. And idolatry is nothing other than giving full devotion, allegiance, our attention, our greatest commitment to anything other than God himself. So idolatry can be a person. We can begin to idolize a person. They become way too important for us. I think, honestly, and you're free to disagree, and this offends some, but I think that sometimes parents can make their children their idols. I think it's possible that parents, and I I love my kids. I raised three kids into adulthood, and they're very special, and they're very important. But you realize, I mean, you can actually elevate your children to a place where basically your child's happiness or what you want to do for your child becomes more important than your commitment to God. And that's not healthy. Samuel had that mistake. Samuel got, ultimately said to Samuel, why do you honor your sons more than me? And, and so we have to be very careful. Even valuable, important, necessary things, a person to become an idol in our life, a possession, some pursuit, some thing that we're interested in, something we're occupied in. And here he says, those who find themselves engaging in idolatry and doing such, he says, there's going to come a time where they're going to feel shame that they serve that idol rather than serving the Lord. That is going to be a degree of shame and, and regret. Oh, Lord, what? I can't believe I gave so much devotion to that when I could have given all my devotion to you. I can't believe I gave so much allegiance to that being so important to me when you should have been so important to me. You know, I just read in my devotions recently. I'm going through Luke's gospel, that section again, where Jesus literally says, if anybody doesn't hate, and then he rambles off, mother or father or children or, or wife and, or, or you know, lands or their own life, they don't hate those things. They're not worthy to be my disciple. Now, was Jesus telling us to truly hate our relatives? Of course not. The Bible tells us that we should love and honor our parents. And so he's not, in essence, saying that we should have hatred. What he's trying to convey there is in comparison to our love and devotion to the Lord, my love and devotion to other people in my life should look like hatred. That's the concept there, is our love for the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength should be so strong and our devotion to him so strong that in comparison, all of the other loves in my life should almost look like hatred in comparison to the high degree of love and serving him foremost. And so here the psalmist speaks about the awesomeness of God, and he says, therefore, let all be put to shame who would serve carved images and boast and idols. So he says, worship him. The idea is instead of other things. And sometimes I think we have to make that shift. We don't, wouldn't want to say we're worshiping something or someone, but sometimes the, the word of God calls us, say, worship him. Put your foremost devotion back upon him again. Worship him, he says. Verse 8, Zion hears, and Zion, of course, remembers a reference to Jerusalem. Zion hears the city of Jerusalem and is glad. And the daughters of Judah, that's the southern part of Israel where Jerusalem was located, they rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. So again, you can see this here where he's trying to elevate the status of the Lord. Again, rejoicing, interesting, rejoicing over the judgments of the Lord. What are the Lord's judgments? His decisions. And he says, your people, Lord, 
can rejoice over the judgments and decisions that you make, for you are most high and you're exalted far above all other gods, all other things that people give attention to. Lord, you're the exalted one, the highest one. We'll see this repeated again and again in these Psalms. Now, verse 10 through 12, he gives some instruction to those who are the people of the Lord. Look what he says. He says, you who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. So notice here verses 10 and 11 and 12. He he speaks about those who are the people of God. And he refers to us in a number of different ways. As the people of God, we are those, verse 10, he says, who love the Lord. Those who love the Lord, these are the people of God. Those who love the Lord are God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. So he refers to us as those who love the Lord. He refers to us in verse 10, the people of God as saints. And the word saints just literally means those who are set apart. Those who are set apart. And from a New Testament perspective, it speaks of those who are set apart even in a righteous standing before God. Not just set apart in commitment or devotion, but we're actually set apart positionally where we actually have a righteous standing before the Lord. We've been made holy by the work of Jesus Christ. He gives to us the removal of our sin, but then he also gives to us the righteousness of his son. And we stand as saints or holy ones in his presence. We have a righteous standing, which is a great encouragement because we don't always perform holy. We don't always live like saints, but God relates to us like saints. And though we fail and we fumble and we make mistakes, By faith, we're saints and we're righteous and we can come to his presence without assurance no matter what kind of day we've had performance-wise. He also refers to us here as those who, verse 11, are the righteous and the upright in heart. That is, we're righteous in the sense that we're seeking to live right before God and to live right before fellow man, as well as, as I just alluded to, that we have a righteous standing before the Lord and that we are now upright in heart. And the idea of upright speaks of the opposite of having kind of been crooked or bent over. And how wonderful, you know, that, that God has given to us an upright heart. That he, you know, our, the idea is he's kind of straightened our heart out. And, and that's kind of what happens when you come to the Lord, right? Before that, your heart was really crooked and bent in all kinds of wrong directions. And, and, and like just kind of straightening out a vertebrae, God straightens out your heart. And God says, okay, let's get your heart right here. And what a wonderful thing to be able to have God by the power of his spirit work in your life and to make your heart upright when at one time it was bowed down to all kinds of crooked and ridiculous things. And so he refers to the people of God in numerous ways. And then he gives to us, as I said, some counsel. Notice the first thing he says to us as God's people. He says, you who love the Lord hate evil. Now, there's a strong word, hate evil. Now, a lot of times as God's people, I think that we think we're supposed to be loving, we're supposed to be loving, we're supposed to be loving. So the idea of hating something, I mean, that's a strong word. It sounds so strong that we almost sometimes retract back because we want to be so full of love that we're not willing to have such a strong thing as the emotion of hatred towards certain things. But again, can I remind you, even Jesus himself use the word hate towards certain things. In the book of Revelation, when Jesus is writing to the seven churches, he referred to the deeds of the Nicolaitans. 
And he's referring, it seemed, to a people who were kind of domineering the people of God. Nicolaity, the idea is Nico, where we get our word Nike, to conquer, Laetans or laity. It seems that there was a class of people who had exalted themselves among the worshipers, among the laity, the common people in the congregation, and they were ruling over people. We have a higher spiritual status. And so you can't just go to God, you have to come to us. And they were ruling over, and they were putting themselves between them and God. And they were kind of keeping people from going directly to God and basically saying, you need to come through us. You need to talk to us. You need to pray through us. You need to confess your sins to us. We'll take of everything because we're over you spiritually. And Jesus, who died on the cross to remove all of that so people could have direct access to God and a relationship directly with God themselves, Jesus said, I hate that. I hate those who come between me and them. And Jesus had a strong animosity. He saw that as something that he despised and he abhorred. And so there are things that God speaks about in the word of God that are an abomination to him, things that he hates. And we have to understand that if it is true about God that the Lord is holy and the Lord is righteous, then there are going to be certain things that God's going to hate, correct? And the things he hates are things that are evil, unrighteous, things that are destructive and damaging to people and dishonoring to him. So God hates evil, and if we love the Lord— then we should have the same heart towards things that God does. It doesn't say that he hates evil people or that we should hate evil people. He says we hate the evil itself. And I think it's very important for us to realize that we should not be passive in the sense of that we just avoid evil or we dismiss evil. That's a good start. But there are certain things that are evil that we should have such a strong abhorrence towards that that's love for God, that our love for God should make us see evil things that happen in our world or evil things that people are doing or evil things that people are doing to other people where we don't just kind of dismiss it or dislike it. We actually hate it, and we hate it because we love God so much, and we know that's something that God hates. I mean, I could ramble off a number of different things, but if, if you can you know, see evil, for example, we were talking actually before the service, myself and another brother in regards to those you know, abusing children, taking advantage of the most vulnerable among us in population, you know, beating up elderly people. or I mean, just some of these things that we see sometimes on the news or sad stories we hear of people manipulating and taking, and that stuff is evil. And if you don't have a strong reaction towards that, something's wrong. Something's wrong because if you love God and you love what's righteous, you should hate that. And so the Bible says, you who love the Lord, don't be passive and just avoid evil, abhor evil. There should be certain things that the Bible says in Romans 12 that we should you know, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. The idea is we should love with a passion and hold on to what's good and righteous. And sometimes to stand up for righteousness, we have a hatred and an abhorrence were evil things that are destroying lives and destroying our culture around us. And here the Holy Spirit calls us to do that. You who love the Lord, he says, hate evil, have a strong passion towards it. Well, if I do that, it may not go well for me in the world. People may not like me. They may resist me. They may, you know, punish me or bring harm against me. Well, look what he says, verse 10. God has an answer for that. He preserves the souls of his saints. Well, if I hate evil, if I take that kind of a strong stance, God says, I'll preserve you. You're my saint. 
You're my set apart one. I will preserve you. I will protect you and shield you. And he says, notice verse 10, he will deliver us out of the hand of the wicked. So when the wicked comes against us to try and destroy us because we stand against their wickedness or their evil, God says, don't worry, I'll deliver you out of their hand. And again, we see this throughout the word of God. God did this for Daniel and he's the same yesterday, today and forever. The Bible says he changes not. God delivered Daniel and Jeremiah and others out of the hand of the wicked, and he can do the same for us as we stand for him. Verse 11, we're told light is sown for the righteous, and that's a beautiful thing. In a dark world, God can sow like sowing seed. He can continue to sow light for us to see where we're going as we stay close to him. God is light, and Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness. And It's a wonderful gift as we live in a dark world to know the Lord can keep sowing light in front of us to make good and right decisions. And also, he says, gladness for the upright in heart. That is, as I live upright before the Lord rather than corrupt like everyone else, I can enjoy a degree of gladness in my life that miserable people who don't serve God know nothing of. Right? I mean, we we look around the world around us and we see the the animosity and the angst and the hatred and I mean just and people out there they're just so miserable just utterly miserable they have no idea how blessed they are just to live in this country let alone anything else and they're so miserable oh it's just so miserable and and the bible says one of the wonderful things of having an upright heart and having your heart right with god is you can experience as a child of god not only a degree of light but a degree of gladness that God can put a degree of gladness in your heart where you can be thankful and rejoice over some of the glorious benefits of just knowing God and having a relationship with God. That's why he says, verse 12 to us, what we should be doing is rejoice in the Lord. He says, you righteous again, we're told this both old and new Testament to rejoice means to celebrate, to take joy in. So he says, rejoice not in what's going on. We can't always rejoice in our circumstances. Sometimes our circumstances are bad, right? Sometimes conditions aren't good. And God doesn't expect us to you know, be fake or false or pretend. But what we can always do is rejoice in one thing, the Lord. Paul, writing to the Philippians, says there, rejoice in the Lord, I say again, rejoice. Do you know where Paul was writing that letter from? Prison prison. Paul was in miserable conditions. He was in a dark, stinky, filthy, disgusting Roman dungeon experience. And Paul said, I can't rejoice in this. All I did was tell people Jesus loves them and try and spare them from hell and and try and plant churches and do good things and follow God's will. And it's landed me here in this miserable dungeon. How could Paul rejoice in that? But what Paul says is rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice, Paul, I can always rejoice in the Lord because the Lord's always worthy of celebrating, right? And, and again, to me, there's a part of that that is a gift because we all go through times when life's really difficult. And in those moments, those difficulties can overwhelm us and consume us and really bum us out and make us feel so discouraged and depressed and downcast. And those are the occasions where it is, it is a gift, to be able to say, man, life is really hard right now, or it really does stink, but you know what? I I got something I can rejoice in. Maybe my neighbor can't. Maybe other people can't who are going through the same things I am, but I can rejoice in the Lord. 
You know, it's a wonderful thing to be able to have that ability to just celebrate the Lord and that he's faithful, that he's going to be with you through the hardship, that he'll help you through processes, and that you're not alone. And that's why he says, give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. So celebrate the Lord, be grateful unto the Lord, thank him for what you can thank him for. Psalm 98, he then goes on to say, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. And here's that expression again. Not only calling us to sing to the Lord, but we've seen this refrain a couple different times. We just saw it back in Psalm 96, sing to the Lord a new song. And the idea there is uh, new is, is a fresh expression. And can that be a new song where somebody receives a, a, a new song? May the Spirit of the Lord gives to somebody a new song and you sing or play through a new song you've never sang before. I think sometimes that's beneficial. And through doing that, we kind of just get ourselves engaged in the moment of worship and maybe a new song resonates with our heart in a whole new way. But the, really the main concept there is a fresh expression of meaningful worship to God where we're sincere, our hearts engaged and, and in a fresh way we really mean and are, are, are celebrating and experiencing the things that we're singing to God. And the reason why I know that is because you see this phrase, a new song, appear multiple times in the Bible, and it even shows up in Revelation chapter 5, around the throne of God in the eternal dimension where it says, and they sang unto the Lord a new song. Now, for all of eternity, you're still singing the same song again and again. How can that be a new song? <laughs> right? Sometimes you think, we need to sing a new song in this church. We keep singing that same song. Well, in eternity, there are some songs that they keep singing incessantly, the Bible records the actual lyrics to them, so you want to make sure you know them. So when you get there, you know those songs around the throne of God. And when others don't, you can say, I went to Calvary Chapel Gateway. We study the whole Bible. I know the lyrics to this. Just, just follow along with me here. But it actually says in Revelation 5, they sang unto the Lord a new song. So the newness, the idea is there was a fresh expression. So what was happening as they were looking to the throne of God, they would see something else about the, the reality of who God is. They see something else about the, the marvelous salvation of Jesus. And every time they would look to the throne, some greater dimension of the glory of God, the glory of Jesus would be revealed and a whole fresh expression would come to their heart and they would sing that song of, of redemption and salvation again and again. And it kept being a fresh, wonderful, meaningful experience. And I think that's why you notice right afterwards, he says, sing to the Lord a new song with fresh expression where it takes on new meaning to your heart. For he has done, notice, marvelous things. Boy, that is true from the days of the Garden of Eden all the way through the entirety of the word of God, the way God's worked with his saints and his people and Israel through human history and then the New Testament the work of Jesus and with the early church and so forth. But, you know, Acts 28 concludes and then Acts 29 began with you and I in our generation. And the reality is, is he has done marvelous things in all of our lives in this room too. And if we were to truly just take a pause and just run down memory lane a little bit and think about some of the marvelous things that God has done in our lives, some of the things that we could testify about, man, Lord, you have done some pretty marvelous things. That should give us a whole new rejuvenation in our heart to with fresh expression, 
want to worship the Lord because he's done marvelous things. That's so true. His right hand, the psalmist says, and his holy arm have gained him the victory. Now, typically most people were right-handed, so a lot of times the right hand was seen as the hand of skill as well as the hand of strength because most people predominantly were right-handed. That's why the Bible speaks about speaking of the, the right hand of a king, the right hand of a throne. So here, when it speaks of his right hand, and his holy arm, it's speaking of by God's skill and by God's strength. Notice, he has gained himself the victory. You know, how wonderful that God with his strength and in his skillful ways that he can work can obtain victory in so many different wonderful ways. And I think that's really encouraging because sometimes we find ourselves so defeated, right? And we're thinking, Lord, I just am so defeated. I just can't conquer this. Lord, I just, I don't know how to get victory over this. Well, notice it says he gains the victory. He does it for himself because he wants victory for us. You know, I love what Paul writes at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 as he's talking about the greatest victory that Jesus accomplished, technically we could fairly say, which was overcoming the power of death and defeating the grave, right? And it says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is all of the victory that God accomplished by his skillful work and by his strength and power in all the ways he has and all the ways he does, it says that God gives us the victory. As we yield to Jesus and we stay in relationship with Jesus, the very power of the resurrection is available to us and God gives us victory. We don't have to obtain victory. God can give us victory. He wants to give it to us. And what a great encouragement. Perhaps tonight you're thinking, I just don't know how I'm going to get victory over this. Well, maybe the reality is you're never going to get victory over it. But maybe you could receive victory if you, by faith, start believing what God's word says and what God is able to do. And Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. This is, there's a big difference there is understanding my job is to cooperate, to yield, to believe, to participate, yes, but I'm not obtaining the victory. He's giving me the victory. It's by his skillful work and by his strength, he grants the victory to us, and then we overcome as he gives us the power to do such through his victorious work. Verse 2 says, And the Lord has made known his salvation, and his righteousness he has revealed in the sight of, of all nations. Notice God also gives to us revelation. God reveals things to us. In verse 2, he talks about the Lord making things known, and then also he has revealed things in our sight. So we serve a God who doesn't try and keep things back. We actually serve a God who wants to show us things. He's a God of revelation, a God who wants to reveal things to us. And here the psalmist says, the Lord has made known his salvation and his righteousness has been revealed in the sight of the nations. Now, there are many ways throughout history that the Lord made known his salvation. The idea is his deliverance when he would set his people free, whether from bondage to slavery in Egypt or times God would come and bring a victory and deliver and give them salvation. But the ultimate way, certainly God has done this clearly, is in the person of Jesus. Because when we read verse 2, that speaks very clearly. The Lord has made known his salvation and his righteousness 
And the, guy, you know, the Bible speaks in Romans 3 of the righteousness of God. It's not an achieved righteousness through religious efforts. It's a received righteousness that's divine. God gives us his righteousness so we have a righteous standing, and he's revealed his righteousness in the sight of all the nations. And the way he did that was he came and he revealed himself as God in the person of his son, Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, one of the purposes that Jesus came for of the many he did was this very purpose of revelation to reveal God to us. If you truly want to know what God is like, spend a lot of time reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because that was God living among humanity. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So what does God like? What does God dislike? How does God react in different situations? How does God feel about religious people? How does God feel about broken sinners? How does God handle things? How does God deal with illness? And, 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 and all? It's seen in Jesus. He reveals to us what God is like. And ultimately, it's through Jesus that God revealed his salvation. It's through the person of his son that ultimately salvation was brought to us and the righteousness of God is made available as a gift to us. And God's made this known to all the nations. He's revealed it clearly in the coming of his son. Verse three, for he has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. So his compassion against failure, mercy, his faithfulness to say true to the nation of Israel as he has many times through history and all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And that continues to happen to this day. So therefore, verse four, he says, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises. Notice the passion and the enthusiasm, the call to worship. Shout joyfully, break forth, rejoice, sing praises. Sing to the Lord with a harp, that is the stringed instrument with a harp and the sound of a psalm, with the trumpets, the blasting sound, and the sound of a horn, shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. Let the sea roar in all the fullness, the world and all who dwell in it. So all creation, again, God has created all things, so therefore not just humanity, but all creation should celebrate the king, as well as all those who dwell in the world, all humanity, let the rivers clap their hands. Well, that's an interesting thing. It'd be interesting to see if that happens someday. The rivers clap their hands, the hills be joyful together before the Lord. Verse nine again, for he is coming, the judge to judge the earth with righteousness. He shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. The idea is complete fairness. So again, we're back to the same theme again. He is king and he is ruler of all. And the Bible tells us that ultimately he is coming, that he's returning. And again, the Bible says this is actually cause for us to celebrate and to rejoice, that we should celebrate and rejoice in the reality that the Lord himself is coming. He's coming back. He's not gonna leave things that are happening on this earth undealt with, it says that with righteousness, he shall judge the world. That word righteousness means a quality of always doing what is right. That is when he brings judgment, and sometimes he must, whether he's disciplining us for our own mistakes and fatherly discipline, and the Lord disciplines those he loves, 
There's never a time where the Lord may discipline me or even judge or correct me severely for something I've done wrong where I can say, that's not right. That's not fair. You know, we can't always say that as parents. There have been times probably where maybe we exercise discipline and we got a little off track as a parent. We don't tell our kids that, but we all know that as parents. That's a parent secret, but not with the Lord. The Lord judges righteously, and he says, and he will judge the peoples with equity. The idea is there will never be a person who can say to the Lord, this isn't fair. You don't have a right to do that because God's throne is based upon righteousness and justice. And even in his judgment, it's all going to be right. And there should be a part of us that is able to celebrate and rejoice in that reality that, Lord, someday all of this that's caused heartache on this earth, Lord, all the things that frustrate me and make it difficult for me as I'm trying to honor you as my king. Lord, you're my king. I don't want you to be my judge. But, Lord, I thank you so much that one day all this that's frustrating me and that's, Lord, one day you're going to make it all right. And nobody's going to be able to resist that. You know, I think in some ways that becomes a, a helpful antidote as we kind of keep journeying through this earth. And sometimes we even find ourselves maybe getting frustrated with our coworkers or our friends or our family members or people who are doing some of the wicked, evil things around us to know ultimately that it is not our job to judge people. That's God's job. And the reason why it's not our job to judge people is what's said here of God he will judge the world with righteousness. I can't say that because I don't always know all the details. And there's been a time or two in my life, and I'm sure yours as well, where we've come down on the side of judgment and we weren't right. We were wrong. And we didn't know all the facts. And so that's why many times it is very valuable for us to love people and to let God judge people. Our job is to love people and to present the truth to them and to know, Lord, ultimately you are a righteous and a fair judge and I'm a flawed person and I just escape judgment. <laughs> so if I just escape judgment, probably the last thing I should be doing is try and play the judge in somebody else's life. Let's stand together.